Welcome to the moment that changed everything, where we interview notable creative people to gain insights into how they got started and learn more about the moments that shaped them and their careers. Today, we sit down with Cho Liang Lin. Cho Liang Lin, or is affectionately known as Jimmy, has performed as soloist with virtually every major orchestra in the world for over 27 years. He's recorded 20 albums, which have won Gramophone Record of the Year and numerous Grammy nominations. He's on the faculty of the Juilliard School of Music, appointed professor at Rice University. He's the PASC music director of La Jolla Summer Fest and music director of both the Hong Kong International Chamber Music Festival and the Taipei Music Academy and Festival. He's performed to an indoor audience of 53,000 and played in both Petco Park in front of the Padres Cardinals game, as well as at Yankee Stadium, and is a soloist on a Hellboy 2 track, a favorite film of mine. Much to my continuing dismay, Jimmy is a huge Yankee fan. He performs in the 1715 Stradivari named Titian, and let's start with a few moments of Jimmy as a 15-year-old student in an Itzhak Perlman masterclass. Okay, so Jimmy, you're the first musician we've had on our show, and I gotta figure in your career you've probably played in front of two, two and a half million people live. Are well, you a little nervous about this, this performance here? Today, talking to yeah. you? Yeah, is it like one of those things that nerve-wracking or? No, I'm, I'm so looking forward to this. You know, I mean, we, we, we have the best conversations. And um, look, I played the national anthem in front of uh, Major League Baseball games. And, uh, and that was disconcerting because when you play the national anthem, uh, you don't really have a, a sound check in, in the sense that you don't have a run through uh, beforehand. And they asked if I wanted to do a pre-record and do a sync. And I said, no, I do everything live, man. I take my chance. <laughs> So the first time I did it, um, I remember, you know, Sammy Sosa, the, the Chicago Cubs were there. Bill Murray came, you know, ran onto the field to greet me afterwards. Um, Where were you playing? Uh, San Diego. Yeah. Padres and Cubs game. Um, and actually, I was more nervous because they're playing long toss. Just as I was walking up to home plate to start playing, and, you know, Sammy Sosa was about 15 feet or less from me. And, and I did not want any errant throws to, you know, come have a, a, a baseball smash into my strat. So that was, that was more nerve wracking. But then when I started playing, what was really funny was that you play, of course, you hear the violin play right next to your ear. But then what you're hearing then is the loudspeaker, those gigantic speakers in the stadium playing what I'm playing, except it's a fraction late you know, because the distance from the speaker to where I'm standing. And then the crowd starts to sing along with me and they're yet another second behind. 
So I'm basically hearing triple versions of the Star Spangled Banner and it's very uh, hard not to get lost while you're hearing all these different feedbacks coming at you. So I had to really focus on my own part and, and, and not to embarrass myself. So talking to you, Lord, this is a piece of cake. <laughs> <laughs> and got it. Okay. So Jimmy, obviously, you know, we're in a pandemic mode at the moment and you're in an industry where it's been catastrophic, you know, playing live in front of people, you know, the, the, the issues that must, must be facing every musician and every performer now must be huge. How are you handling this? Uh, it's really tough for the industry. And I believe this extends beyond classical music. It goes to the pop world, jazz world, every, every single performing entity. Um, it's really tough because, uh, you know, the guidelines say that large congregations in close proximity is about the worst thing you can do. Uh, so going to a concert is ranked as bad as uh, going to an amusement park uh, or going to a political rally. I don't know which one is the worst, but in any case, the, the music world is really dismal right now. And certainly in North America, uh, there's nothing happening. Uh, all the summer festivals have been canceled. Um, and, um, and the fall season for many orchestras have uh, been canceled. And now it is looking more and more likely that the entire uh, 2021 season, you know, because the concert season goes from September 20 to May or June of 21. So the, season, the entire season all the way into uh, late spring of 21 will be canceled as well. So that's really dismal. And uh, so, so the, the, there, there's large fallout, you know, huge consequences that go with it. Uh, not only are the orchestras not playing, um, so the musicians are either being furloughed or they're just being outright dismissed. Um, and some orchestras are wealthy enough to maintain some sort of salary to, to pay, but how long can that go on? We don't know. And then there is the organization, the, the arts presenters, the, the concert presenters, when they have no income uh, from ticket sales, how can they survive? So soon enough, I'm sure if not already, they furloughed the staff. And then even when things become better, will the audience come back? Because we're looking at demographics uh, for classical music anyway, um, on the old, uh, elder side. And so it's really, you know, that's perhaps the most vulnerable group. So psychologically, will they feel safe? Now, having said that, Laura, um, there are success stories out there, you know. Well, you have one. So look, you're born in Taiwan. You're American now, right? Yep. Okay. Um, so Taiwan has this unbelievable record about how to handle coronavirus. And we're speaking to you in Houston, which has got to be maybe one of the worst places to be in the world at the moment. How do you handle that? It's really funny um, in that I'm very proud of Taiwan um, because they have set an absolute example for the rest of the world. Unfortunately, the United States is not following that example and it's all free for all. And it made me feel slightly better that a good friend in Tel Aviv today wrote me an email saying Israel is just as bad because there's certain machismo quality about Israelis that they, they think they know what to do and they know better than anybody else. They, they go about doing their own thing. So even though they initially clamped down and flattened the uh, curve, but then now it's you know starting to rise again. But I, I don't know so much about that, but I do know about Houston and Houston is really bad right now. 
and I have an 88-year-old mom um, whom I'll have to leave behind. So I have to make sure that she's well taken care of while I'm gone. I, I'm going to Taipei for about a month. Um, and uh, so the great thing about Taiwan is that um, there no, they have not been locally transmitted case of infection for close to 80 days by now. And uh, concert halls have begun to reopen. Not only that, uh, symphony orchestras have begun to play, to perform, and they now are allowing full capacity audience. So recently the, the Taiwan Philharmonic played a Mahler symphony and they had 2000 people in attendance. Really? And, and it's amazing. I just love that idea of being uh, for a musician to go back on stage to perform, to rehearse, to make music with other colleagues, and then to have an audience. You know, right now, even the best of the European institutions that are daring to go back into the concert hall, they're only playing either with a very small ensemble so they can keep social distance, or they're playing virtual reality or both. So, so right now, you know, having 2,000 people in any concert hall in North America is pretty much you know, out of the question. So, so to see that happening in Taiwan is really, uh, I think it's in, in very inspiring. So you said you're going to Taipei tomorrow for a month. What are you doing in Taipei? Um, I run, I started a summer music uh, festival uh, to educate and to work with uh, young musicians, very advanced young musicians. And so what we do is that it's an immersion course. And this year we had to cut back because of the pandemic, but normally we have, we have it for two weeks where uh, faculty work alongside with musicians every day and from morning until late, late afternoon, early evening. And we teach, we play uh, chamber music, we play orchestras, and we do all sorts of activities together and, and we perform together in the end. And so, so it's a, it's a high-end high uh, music festival designed for um, really talented young players. Um, and so this year I, I was you know, ready to give up in March when everything started to close down. And Taiwan was not in good, good shape back then. So I thought for sure Taiwan would close down and that's the end. But I was told by friends there to uh, wait. And sure enough, um, by late April, things started to get under control. Um, the quarantine worked, um, the lockdown worked and the Taiwanese really cooperated. I mean, they have good citizens there. And so uh, concerts began to be planned. So when I heard that, I reopened the application process. And sure enough, many uh, Taiwanese talents who um, basically left uh, top American music schools uh, when they shut down and they went online. So they all went back to Taiwan. So we had no shortage of talents applying, very high quality students. So we said, okay, let's do a smaller version and 35 students uh, working with uh, seven faculties. Uh, we will just work with them very intensely for one week instead of two weeks. Um, so here it is, it's happening now. So who's coming, who's teaching? Uh, we, <laughs> the, the faculty roster has undergone such changes because of Taiwan, um, Taiwan's travel ban and also a lack of flights, um, quarantine. We, we all have to go through 14 days of quarantine and this is very strict quarantine. We cannot leave our hotel room. Um, wow. Are you serious? Yeah, right. And they check on you every day. If you don't answer your phone, a police officer will come and knock on your door within a few minutes. 
Um, so it's it's they, they uh, in Taiwanese authorities they they do mean business when they when they do this quarantine, but it's it's working clearly. But as a result of those you know many hurdles, um, we, we've had a, a large turnover of faculty, but we do have some fabulous musicians going. Um, who are so brave and so uh, um, such good friends to 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 go through it with me, and, and the the rock roster includes David Chan, who is the concertmaster of the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra, and uh, faculty at the Juilliard School, Philip Setzer, the violinist of the renowned the Emerson String Quartet, um, the violist named Xingming Huang, she's uh, faculty at both Juilliard School and Curtis Institute. And the cellist is Dimitri Atapin, who is a regular at the Chemi Music Society of Lincoln Center and a faculty at the University of Nevada. And Peter Lloyd, and uh, Peter, Peter is a uh, bassist and faculty of the Coburn School in Los Angeles, and plus myself. Um, and also we have a couple guest artists like Benny Tang. Benny is a fabulous young violinist who won top prize at the Tchaikovsky competition in Moscow a few years ago and uh, some uh, other wonderful uh, musicians to assist us to make it all happen. So Jimmy, going back to what we were talking about just a moment ago about the pandemic and the fact that you're a musician, you're obviously your career is continuing, you know, as it should, and you're going to be doing the things that you want to, but what is everyone else going to do? It, uh, I, I see postings on Facebook, social media of my colleagues, who worry about that constantly, you know, they resort to cooking, um, they do other things, they, you know, they ad <laughs> adopt dogs, <laughs> we just did. Um, but those are, you know, these are stopgap measures. There's, there's no solution until we have a chance to go back on stage. Uh, recently, I was talking to the presenter in Hong Kong who presents my other festival, which is the, um, JNA Beer Premier uh, Music Festival, which is a chair music festival in Hong Kong. Um, the thing is, we talked about Hong Kong's quarantine, which is the same as Taiwan. So what do we do then for our next January's festival? And uh, when the, the subject of going online to perform, that was immediately nixed because so many people are doing it already. You know, there's only a finite amount of online performances one is willing to hear even if they are free, you know, you can, you can go online now and hear Vienna State Opera, the Metropolitan Opera, various wonderful great orchestras perform. So, you know, that that's not really the catch anymore. So what do we do? You know, we have to we have to play live. And I know every orchestra, every quartet, every performer is trying to play out, perform out of their own living room. But you cannot go on like that. I mean, there's only a finite amount of audience for that. So, so right now, to be honest, I don't have a solution. I don't see a way out of this until um, some sort of medical treatment and vaccine become available. Um, what about your groupies? I mean, you have people that follow you from all over the world. What happens with that? All of a sudden, do they become your audience? <laughs> uh, I don't know. I think I lost my groupies a long time ago. I think they, they're only interested in 20-year-olds. <laughs> but uh, but uh, I'm a, I'm a has-been, you know, in that department. Um, yeah. But the thing is, uh, it, it is, it is important um, to be inventive, but there's only so much invention you can do you know for instance i think there's a swedish musician who recently 
I, I, I was really impressed. She played every instrument in the Mendelssohn octet, which involves two cellos, two violas, and four violins. And she recorded herself and somebody edited them into looking like a, a group of eight all fanned out. And of course, it's all the same person playing. And that was immensely incredible. I, I, I thought this is a work of genius. But how many musicians in the world can actually play all three instruments? I don't think I know more than just this one person. Right. So it's a rare thing. So you can only do those sort of, I, I don't want to call it gimmicky because this, this person obviously invested a lot of effort to make it work and it's very impressive. But those things can only go so far. One of the things that I noticed here was th there's a comedy festival that I go to every year called Just for Laughs. So this year they're kind of having the, the festival, but it's in, um, in an outdoor space where you stay in your car. Yeah. And it's kind of, when you think about it, really amazing because it's still one person performing and you have the protection of your car. You don't have to worry about a theater. So it has a lot to do with, you know, how do you play, how well will you play outdoors? Can you fill the place with sound, you know, to make it great? But it's an interesting way that now our car is going to become the thing that protects us when we go outside. That might be a very interesting venue uh, to present concerts again. I think awesome. I love the idea. You know, obviously the weather has to be good if it's raining or, or too cold and snowing, forget it. Um, and the thing is, I mean, that's kind of equal to watching uh, professional sports, isn't it? I mean, sort of like, you know, Major League Baseball, football, hockey, you have to find some ways to bring them somewhere. I don't know whether you can play in an outdoor uh, ice rink and then have um, all the cars lined up like, you know, 80 deep and, and watch a, a National Hockey League, dip, you know, watch the Maple Leafs or, or, or the New York Rangers play. I don't know if that's possible. Um, but, uh, but, you know, even like the most famous outdoor venue in America is the Hollywood Bowl. But that's not designed for cars. You know, you still have to park your car and walk in into this fantastic space of 15,000 seats. So uh, can you convert them into cars? I don't know, you know, can you, uh, so that, that, that means, you know, basically uprooting the Hollywood Bowl as we know it and, and permanently destroy that structure to make it into a, a drive-in. So I, I, I honestly don't know how you can find the venues, but I love the idea that you can drive in and hear something. Well, I mean, possibly the next one might be, you know, you're in Staples Center or in the parking lot of Staples Center playing to the parking lot. Right. I mean, that, that could work. You know, the, 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 everybody's trying to come up with some sort of invention. I, I know uh, it's really, it's a matter of survival for, for the musicians. Um, and I guess for some, to, to, to some extent, uh, showbiz, right? I mean, movies too. It, 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 you know, nobody wants to go back in the movie theaters. Um, so everybody goes to Netflix and, and uh, Amazon video, etc. So, so where would that take us, you know, come next Academy Awards season? Um, and then you go to uh, Broadway, you know, the musicals, and that's a huge business. And how would you, would you, you know, Hamilton has already gone online, so that's a good start. So will other musicals follow suit? But the worst thing is the opera world, because opera singers, um, they have to sing in close proximity to each other and they have to belt it out. So there's a lot of airborne stuff flying all over the place on that stage. And then the orchestra pit is small to start with. So if you fit an orchestra in, they are, all the musicians are very close to each other. 
there's no way you can have social distance between the musicians and yet fit you know 80 people into that pit whether it's the metropolitan opera or the Covent garden or wherever um so that that's a that's a health issue that I, I i hope somebody can figure out you know i mean the problem is you cannot wear a hazmat suit and still play the violin you know <laughs> <in that thing>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah i guess there's something to having that supple shoulder available to play right well, and the wind instruments, you know, you cannot play with a mask on. So those are this, there's no other way around it. So this is a real dilemma, you know. Um, when you don't play in front of a live audience, is it tough to get up for your performances or can you still practice as hard knowing that, you know, one day it'll happen? But there's got to be sort of like this, you know, um, not so much performance anxiety, but getting up for a gig. You know, um, the fact that it's a live thing, you know, everything's probably heightened. What happens now or do you ever lose that? Um, I've been doing this for over 40 years. So I kind of know what to expect. And I think I, before the very first concert, which will happen at the beginning of August in Taipei, I'm sure I'll still have some butterflies. Um, but I think the, the, the joy of playing in front of a live audience will completely overwhelm whatever jitters I might have, you know, it's just uh, uh, something that I'm so excited and happy um, to actually see happening. Uh, however, but you have the opportunity to play live. Let's say you didn't have this. I mean, you've created something for you where you get to play in front of a live audience. 99% of the musicians out there don't have that. Is it tough for them to keep their games up? Oh, totally. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I would liken that to a professional athlete. You know, I mean, let's let's hypothetically say you you're a top ranked tennis player in the top ten, and um, you go back into a tournament, and the first tournament that's actually open is the U.S. Open, and you draw Roger Federer in the first round. What the hell do you do, right? <laughs> so, so you have no chance to warm up other than practice with a partner. So to go into a game situation, a top game tournament situation. It's the same as going on stage and, and play a concert. You just can't do um, enough preparation. No matter how much you do, the mind still switches to a different gear when you walk onto that big stage and you face your audience. So um, I think there will be a lot of musicians with great butterflies when they go back on stage if that you know happens in the near term. So you were talking about the person playing Roger Federer. You're the essentially Roger Federer of, of playing the violin. So is, can you get it quickly or is it still the same, you know, you need three weeks, six weeks of playing in front of live audiences to make it work? No, you, you, can, you can definitely practice in your own home if you know what to do to work it out. Um, right now, I've been practicing actually, you know, when the pandemic closed everything down, I went through a period where I didn't do much work. Uh, I was too depressed to, to want to do anything. And then I... Um, begin to work, but only kind of keeping a minimum level of playing going, you know, barely. I, I know I can take the violin out and it won't be embarrassing to hear me play, but it's nothing like, you know, that I'll consider remotely excellent. But in the last month or, or more, I've been motivating myself to crank myself up into bat, back into concert shape. So what I will do is that I'll do simulated performances and uh, I will sit 
and stand in my own practice room. But then I'm going to say, okay, here's the performance. This is what I'm going to do. This is the first rehearsal with an orchestra. And this is the second rehearsal. And this is the uh, concert. So I'll, I'll go through that simulation and then I will play through it and I'll say, now, how did that feel? You know, if it's not good enough, then I'll do it again. I'll just keep doing it until I'm comfortable. Um, Jimmy, how'd you start? How'd you start playing violin? When I was a little kid? Yeah. Uh, I, I was living in Taiwan, a uh, little college town. Um, and my next door neighbor, uh, a boy, maybe two years older, he started playing the violin. Um, I was five, didn't know any better. But my, in, my instinct took me to his house every day. You know, I could hear the violin sound coming out of his window and I just dropped my toys. I wouldn't watch any more cartoons. I just run over to his house and just sat by him. Watch, I was sitting on the floor, watch, you know, looking up at him every day. You know, whenever I heard the violin, I just went. Um, so that particular um, friend's father said, you know, why don't I just give you a toy violin? And he just cut a violin shaped cardboard out put some fishing lines on and pretend to be strings and gave me a chopstick. And so I started pretending that I was playing with my friend and, um, and I just wouldn't leave that toy violin alone. So I, my parents took notice, you know, this for a five-year-old to show such intense interest. Um, let's give him a violin, a real violin and um, let him start and see what happens. So um, just, I can thank my neighbor for that. So were you like every other kid that picked up a violin and it was absolutely awful as soon as you, you played it? Oh, it was terrible. Uh, I, I sounded ghastly. Um, first two years. I think that's why I think uh, some kids prefer to play the piano because the beginner level piano playing, as horrendous as it sounds, is less offensive than a <laughs> <laughs> violin. Uh, because, you know, uh, it's like Perlman was showing on his... Uh, online lesson thing he said no look on the violin there's no fits you know you 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 hold the violin up and you have to do everything by feel and so to play in tune is really virtually impossible until you know where your fingers are going and then your bow goes on the string and you don't know where it's supposed to go to make a good sound and it takes a lot of coordination to make those things work so for for any beginner you know old or young doesn't matter the first couple years are, are, are pretty bad uh, sonically. Um, it, it's, it's really, really amazing that many violinists actually are willing to go through those torturous years. <laughs> so you went through a couple of torturous years. Did you still love it? Oh, I loved it. Yes. Um, what was good about it is that I realized if I practiced, I got better. And that was a very good reward for me. Um, and I think that goes for a lot of, you know, kids learning curve, right? You do something by, by hard work and you get rewarded by an improvement of some tangible sort. Um, and in the violin, definitely, uh, it's very clear. You know, I, I was able to get up and perform something, uh, during my second year. I don't think I played particularly well, but at least I could get up and play a piece in public. And then the third year, uh, I, I began to enter a local competition and then a very uh, 
prestigious teacher in Taiwan heard me just by chance that night in this local competition and liked me, what, what uh, like my musicality or something in there. And so uh, when my parents approached her uh, as a possible teacher, and she actually agreed. Uh, I thought I would never get into her class because you know her studio was like the most prestigious in Taiwan. But sure enough, she took me. And so those things, you know, have a funny way of of linking, you know, like leading from one event to the next. So gradually, I got better, and I realized that the more work I did, the better I would sound. So it was a very logical uh, progression, and it was I, I felt rewarded constantly. So was there the need for your parents to bug you to continue to practice, or you did that on your own? No, my parents had to had to uh, <laughs> remind me rather firmly sometimes uh, that I needed to do work. I even I even devised this a trick that I I never told my mom until recently. Um, she would be the first one home, uh, you know. So certain days I'm practicing home. She said, "Practice an hour," and of course I procrastinate and I don't know what I was doing, but playing toys or whatever, uh, war games. And then suddenly I could hear from a distance that my mom is coming back. So what I would do is I will rosin my bow with huge amount of rosin. Because when you rosin the bow a lot, when you play just a few notes, there's a lot of rosin dust on the violin. So it appears that on the violin that I've been practicing a lot because there's so much <laughs> rosin dust. But I literally played for only two minutes. And, and I, I, I presented my violin to my mom, says, Mom, look, I've been practicing. See all that rosin? <laughs> when did she figure it out? <laughs> I, actually, I don't think she ever called on. The only thing is that guilt really took over. And I realized that I shouldn't pull that kind of stunt. <laughs> So nine years old, you now have a great teacher. You're in Taiwan. What's the next? What were the next steps? Uh, gradually thinking about going overseas. Um, that that was a, a very tough decision um, because at age eleven, when I was getting good enough to think about going overseas, my father passed away from cancer, and so I'm the only child. So that was only my mom and I, you know. Um, so to to say, okay, you're going to go overseas is harder than one thinks because you can say, well, okay, two people just pick up and leave, but somebody had to work to support the child. So um, we picked Australia uh, at that juncture because uh, I had an uncle there who could look after me while my mom worked um, on her visa to go to Australia. So half a year later, she joined me. So at age 12, I moved to Sydney and spent three uh, fabulous, really great years there. I love Sydney and my friends there. Um, even, you know, it's, it's so regrettable that um, in May I was supposed to do a very sizable tour through Australia, so many different cities. And I was already in contact with friends there. We were, let's get together, let's meet up. Um, and then everything got canceled in, in March. So anyway, um, you know, Australia was a great stepping stone towards America, because my goal was always Juilliard school, Juilliard. How did you get into Juilliard? Uh, I guess I played okay by then. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, I, I knew Juilliard was this sort of mystical place, um, very prestigious, and it trained so many great musicians. And then when I was in Australia at age 13, I, I went to hear Itzhak Perlman, and, and, and those concerts changed my life, you know. Recently, I had a conversation with Mr. Perlman, and, and he, uh, to this day, 
doesn't realize that he made such an impact on little me. Um, he just didn't like Australia at all. He hated that tour, but he played gorgeously. Um, and he um, gave a masterclass and I played for him. And I was so excited, you know, this is my new hero, you know. And I played and he started talking to, to me and all the students present about his Juilliard days. And from that encounter, I decided I am going to Juilliard. I'm going to study with this teacher named Dorothy Pillay, who taught Itzhak Perlman, because if she could do whatever she did to Mr. Perlman, I'm going to learn something from her for sure. So how did you meet Mr. Lay? I just auditioned for her. She didn't know me. I didn't know. I didn't get a chance to meet her. I just put her name down in my request to study at the Juilliard. And when I passed the audition, um, she heard my audition. And I guess uh, a couple, three weeks later, I got the notification that Mr. Lay had accepted me into her studio. Um, and I think about maybe three weeks after that, I began Juilliard pre-college. Um, so I walked in her studio, very nervous, of course. And there it was, a huge picture of Itzhak Perlman um, in performance, hanging her studio. I said, oh my God, this is it, isn't it? This is the moment. This is the big leagues. Uh, <laughs> Dorothy Delay, the teacher of Perlman, portrait of Perlman, and this is the Juilliard School. Oh my God. <laughs> that, that was so exciting for me. <laughs> yeah, I guess she didn't have a picture of Sammy Sosa up. <laughs> nor my uh, various Yankee heroes but that's yeah, okay <laughs> <that's right. laughs> um, how old are you? you're 15 now? I was 15 then um, and so studies you know really started seriously uh, and, and that was a very crucial moment because what I didn't realize is that in two years that Miss Delay thought that I had improved enough that she started uh, arranging me to audition for various conductors and orchestra managers. And, and I didn't know any better. I just played, I practiced. And there were some moments, of course, being a teenager, I goofed off. But I, I you know, went to concerts at Carnegie Hall, at Lincoln Center, and I was always very awe-inspired by hearing great musicians play, great orchestras play. Um, so I kept working. And then, you know, I started auditioning for, uh, uh, St. Louis Symphony. I got a summer, uh, summer gig uh, uh, at the, the Summer Pops. You know, granted, it was a Pops concert, but it was still the St. Louis Symphony. I was thrilled to be able to play in front of a great orchestra. And then there's a Spanish conductor who came and I played for him. He said, we're starting a competition in Madrid. Why don't you come and, and do the competition? And so I went, it was called the Queen Sophia. I went about half a year later and I won a gold medal. And so concerts started to you know, come in from Spain and other European places. And one by one, you know, things started to roll and a couple influential managers heard me in various auditions and liked me and signed me. And so by the age 19, I, I was kind of starting to make my breaks into really the major leagues, you know, uh, playing uh, in the main series with the likes of uh, Houston Symphony. And then a year later, the Philadelphia Orchestra, and then the New York Philharmonic, London Symphony, etc. And these were very, you know, serious, uh, serious concerts. And um, so by then, you know, things started to, to take off in a, in a really good way.
When did you buy your first strap? Oh man, I had the worst violin in the world, you know. I didn't know, you know, and my father picked it up um, from a trip to America. Uh, he spent $500 US and I played well, it. Well, you gotta remember that's like 25,000 Canadian, so. <laughs> <laughs> we look at that very differently. <laughs> I believe the labels say Louisville Slugger. I don't know why. <laughs> um, but, um, but it stayed with me through all my teen days. Um, and then finally, uh, Mr. Lay said, look, um, your violin is just not good enough. Let's look for something better. So I realized that this, that was getting, you know, becoming imperative. Um, so I was looking for loner violins and I was in no shape to, uh, to buy any strats, you know, I mean, that was just like far-fetched dream as far as I was concerned. And, but then it became a little bit more realistic because when my concert career started to take off, I realized I, I was making an income. Um, but a young performer's fees are never very high, but I made up for it with sheer quantity because, <laughs> was, you know, I didn't, ha I didn't have anything else to do. So I just kept playing. I, I was performing nonstop. How many concerts were you, were you doing a year? Uh, well, by the time I graduated uh, at age 21 from Juilliard, I was already doing about 50 concerts. Oh my God. And uh, I don't know how I got through that my senior year. Um, I think a lot of very helpful friends got me through the term papers and final exams. But <laughs> then the next year, uh, my, my manager said, uh, next year, you're going to take off. So it jumped from 50 to 100 and then to 120. And that was the absolute peak because I realized I couldn't handle any more than that. Um, so, but is I needed- it mentally as well as physically exhausting? Very, very tough um, because, you know, different repertoire, you know, like if you play, um, let's say the Beethoven Violin Concerto uh, one, one week with a particular orchestra and then two weeks later, another orchestra might not want Beethoven. So you have to switch to another concerto, maybe the Sibelius or Mendelssohn or something. And then the week after that, some other orchestra wants something else. So you have to plan these things very carefully. And I was a rookie. So I was trying to uh, figure things out, but you know, I had to be very careful because when you go on to a major orchestra for a debut, if you don't play well, you'll never get invited back. That's the end. And so it, that can also, I mean, there are two opposite uh, spirals. You can spiral upward by making successful debuts and word gets around. You know, other orchestras start hearing about you, they read the reviews um, and there's a buzz about you. And then the reverse is true that if you start to play one or two or concerts that are you know, less than stellar, then word will get around too that you're not up to snuff and the invitations will stop. And you certainly know at that, I, I knew at that juncture that if you make a debut with a really prestigious orchestra, you don't do well, you can kiss that orchestra goodbye. You, you, they'll never invite you back. Um, so, so for some reason, I didn't, I didn't mind the pressure. I actually thrived under it, you know. And then eventually, I had enough money that uh, and all the loaner violins, like the strats that I got loaned, got um, recalled. So I, I, I had to really knuckle down and get uh, my own strat for the first time, and that was in 1983 in London in the summer. I was 23 years old and I bought my Strat and I, I was like thrilled. Uh, I couldn't believe it. I was going on, I, I remember I was flying from London to New York that day 
and I picked out my strat and I gave, I was given a receipt, you know, it has stamped, uh, uh, paid in full. And the receipt says $335,000, Antonio Stradivari's 1707. And I, I have, I have that receipt, I think to this day, and <laughs> I just couldn't believe it. There it is. You know, it was the violin was mine, even though I owed a lot of money to a benefactor, but I worked very hard to pay it back. And seven years later, the strat was entirely mine. Um, so I guess it didn't have, you don't have to pay tax on that through customs to bring it back into the States, do you? Thank goodness. No, no, there, there's, there's a, uh, um, a law that if it's your, uh, instrument and it's considered, um, a tool for the trade. So you, you don't have to pay, but I did frighten, uh, a, a Canadian customs officer, uh, in Winnipeg once I landed, um, and that was the frontier and, and, and I had to declare everything. So um, I declared my violin as one of my personal belongings. And she said, uh, so how much is your violin? Uh, I said, 330,000 US. And she said, oh, wait. And she made me stop and she brought a supervisor back. And I thought, oh my God, I hope I don't have to pay duty on this violin. I'm just here for a concert. So the, 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 the uh, supervisor, thank goodness, realized what I was doing in Winnipeg and uh, just said and, and allowed me to go ahead without it. But that was a you know bit of a frightening moment for a bit. <laughs> well, we're Canadian. We follow all the rules. <laughs> um, Jimmy, listen, I could do this forever and your time's important. You're probably going to Taiwan tomorrow. Can we pick this up again and do this one more time? Um, perhaps after you get back from Taiwan? I'd love to. I'd love to give you a report uh, about what's happening in a, a COVID-free environment. Yeah, and will you take take some um, um, take some videos of what it is, and we'll play them so people can see just what happened there. Yeah. And also, seeing someone in a lot in front of a live audience. I mean, this is something that we don't see and probably won't see for a year. Yeah, I'm thinking like if I could dare to be a little outrageous, I'm going to walk on stage. Because I, I'm going to say something to the audience um, to welcome them to the concert. But I'm going to bring my, my phone with me. I'm going to put it on video. I'm going to film and I'm going to tell the audience. I said, I'm filming all of you just because we don't get any of this in America. <laughs> you know what? You make it a Zoom call and we'll be there. <laughs> okay. Hey, Jimmy, thank you so much. This has been great. I'll speak to you again soon. Lori, it's always a pleasure. It's wonderful to see you and talk to you. Thank you for all, having me. All the best. Thanks. All right. Be well. Okay, thanks. Bye-bye now. This episode has been brought to you by the National Advertising Challenge, North America's only brief-based challenge that sends winners to Cannes, France.